your humble host, Osgood. We have two stories for you this evening, so we'd best get down to it. Our first story this evening is by Barbara A. Barnett. Ms. Barnett is a writer, musician, orchestra librarian, odyssey-writing workshop alum, coffee addict, wine lover, and all-around geek. Her short fiction has appeared in publications such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Shimmer, Daily Science Fiction, and Flash Fiction Online. Barbara lurks around the Philadelphia area and can be found online at babarnett.com. It will be read for us this evening by Tepic. A Red One Cannot See by Barbara A. Barnett Filbert pressed his snout against the glass. The Benedict's windows were angled out so that one could watch the sea passing beneath the dirigible, but Filbert fixed his gaze further in the distance, where the island was coming into view. It will be a lonely ride, Limohong, his mentor had told him before his departure, the human mentor who had taken him from the island years before and given him the name Filbert. Have you not thought that there might be a reason so few of your kind return to the island? Mist hung over the island the way smoke hovered around the factory stacks on the mainland city of New Madagascar. The humans would be building those factories on the island soon, Gilbert had heard. The forests would be raised, and when his family became too numerous for the enclaves into which they would be forced, they would be put into zoos or caged as pets. Pets that would be hidden at parties whenever a Lima home like himself was in attendance. Unless I share what I have learnt, Gilbert thought. My kin will see that I am no different from them, that they can better themselves as I have. Gilbert drew back from the window. Immediately, one of the Benedict's attendants made its way over to clean the glass. Gilbert's fur stood on end as the attendant drew near. A click-clack of metallic limbs and a whir of gears beneath a starched collar and a velvet waistcoat. Filbert thought the attendants should smell like the humans they resembled, like salt and sweat masked beneath artificial perfumes. Instead, their scent was one of oil and metal, their sound an unnatural winding and grinding that the cabin's thick oriental rug could not absorb. They moved with stiff, jerky motions, as Filbert's mentor had when the rheumatism took hold, 
only their brass faces never twisted with pain. Philbert leaned back in his wicker chair, one of twenty lining the passenger cabin's aisles. Unlike the attendants, the chair had a scent with life to it, a woody odour lingering beneath the cleaning fluids that the attendants wiped with everything a passenger touched. The humans are going to build a new factory in the bank district, a passenger across the aisle said, a limahom like Filbert, his snout buried in a newspaper. More jobs to get the beggars off the streets. Can't abide the way they yank at your coattails when you pass, especially when you've got another tail to worry about them yanking as well. The limahom snickered, then patted his ringed tail, drawn up from behind him and curled on his lap. Filbert smiled, politely, as his mentor had instructed, no teeth barred. The other limahom, sitting so close despite the two of them having the entire cabin to themselves, possessed a tidy elegance that made Filbert's cravat look too crooked, his watch chain too tarnished, his nails too long and sharp for civilised company. I'm going back to the island for a mate, the Limahom said, looking up from his newspaper. He was one of those who had gone to the doctors to have his face altered, to make it flatter like a human's. The Lima Femmes on the mainland have too good an idea of themselves now. They're insufferable. Filbert gave a non-committal grunt. This other Limahom had a visual enhancement too spectacles embedded over his eyes, mounted with mechanical arms that would shift the tinted lenses and allow him to see the colours as the humans did. Dichromatism is the problem, Filbert's mentor had explained when trying to foist such spectacles upon him. Your kind sees the world in only blues and greens. Without these, you will never know how glorious the colour red can be. Filbert stared at the dirigible's carpeted floor, a swirl of reds that he would never truly see. Such a disappointment he had turned out to be to his mentor. He had left his island home and learned to walk upright among the humans, to bathe and groom and dress like them, to ornament himself with hats and canes so that his mentor could show him off at parties but he still refused the alterations in which so many other Limahoms indulged. "'Why do you go back to the island?' his fellow passenger asked as he folded his newspaper into a neat rectangle. "'Because those we've left at home deserve a better idea of themselves,' Filbert said, his voice tinged with the snarl he had been taught to contain. "'Like the Lima Femmes.' "'I see.' The Limahom sniffed indignantly, then signalled one of the Benedict's attendants with a wave of his newspaper. You're one of those. The attendant handed him another newspaper and bowed, gears clacking and wheels whirring. The Limahom spared the attendant no glance. Never mind why you would want to help those who are not as gifted as the rest of us, he said to Filbert. You just can't. The fools won't have it. 
Filbert's fur bristled. A primitive reaction of aggression, his mentor would have called it. Or perhaps it's because we think ourselves so much better that we never try. The other Limahom responded with a condescending sniff and a raise of his flattened nose. If that's what you need to tell yourself. Filbert turned away to gaze out the window. His mentor had told him that when humans stared at the sea from above like this, when it filled their sight lines so completely, they saw as the Limahoms did, nothing but blues and greens. Filbert thought of the large balloon cavity above them, filled with no more than gas to keep them from plummeting into those blues and greens, where the waves would swallow them and the pressure would snap the dirigible's skeletal frame. And no matter what colour they saw on the way down, their fate would be the same. In some ways, Filbert thought, the island forest was not so different from the human's world in New Madagascar. The moss-covered trees were as tightly packed as city buildings, and often loomed just as high. The island and the city were both humid and oppressive, both crowded with life. They draped themselves and their inhabitants with hazy shrouds. On the island, mist clung to one's hair and skin. On the mainland, smoke clung to one's clothes and lungs. Filbert left the dirigible's landing site behind and sloshed through a shallow pool towards the forest mud enveloping his feet with each step. He remembered how comforting the sensation had been during his youth, when the dampness would seep between his toes and cool his padded palms as he strode forth on all fours. Now, though, it squelched in his boots and made him squirm. Filbert pressed forward into the shade beneath the forest canopy, where thick vegetation brushed his fur. Insects buzzed past his ears, chirping a myriad of mating calls, so much more straightforward than the complicated rituals the humans called courtship. Filbert snickered to think how aghast his mentor would be at his present state, filth sloshed across his trousers, his boots encased in mud, his fur matted with sweat. For all the human trappings he had adapted over the years, he was no different from his kin. As a boy, all he had done to catch his mentor's attention was mimic a human's whistle, then a gesture or two. Any of his family could have done the same, had they shared his curiosity, had they not been preoccupied with the necessities of survival in the forest. Yet it was Filbert who had been taken to New Madagascar, groomed and schooled, and declared a limahom, fit for society. There is no reason we should not all be given the chance I had, he thought. Perhaps a greater chance, a chance to better ourselves on our own terms. A familiar scent halted Filbert's steps. Damp fur that had been dragged against tree bark and leaves, coated with dirt and sweat and excrement. The assault on his nose was so overwhelming that he wanted to hurry past, but he refused to turn away 
from that for which he had returned. His kin. Filbert found the lemurs by a clump of trees, some huddled on the ground, some hanging from the branches. He called out to them in their tongue, I am home! Several of the lemurs scampered away, chittering as they disappeared into the heights of the trees. Those that stayed peered down from the branches, half hidden in shadows, fur raised, bodies poised to flee. I am home, Filbert said again, hands held out in supplication. I've come back to share what I've learned, to share it all with you. He stepped forward, and more lemurs scurried away on all fours. Filbert crouched to mimic their stance, cringing at the protest in his muscles. When had walking on two legs become so comfortable, he wondered, so natural? A female lemur peered at him from behind a rotting stump. One of his sisters, perhaps. He should have recognised her scent, but it was too much like the alleys in New Madagascar, where people emptied their chamber pots. Filbert held out his hand, one with nails too polished and finely trimmed to climb trees as easily as he once had. Do you recognise me? The female Lima backed away, her round eyes fixed on him, as if she understood the words, but did not trust them. Please, Philbert crawled towards her, gritting his teeth, to think that he had once moved on all fours as gracefully as his kin, only to do so now with such awkwardness. Please, tell me that you remember me. Tell me that things have not changed so much. The female lemur crept out from behind the stump. She sniffed at Filbert's mud-covered hands and gave a faint chirp of recognition. Filbert laughed, but as the lemur moved on to sniffing the shampooed fur around his snout and ears, her chirp became one of agitation. Please, Filbert said, I came back to help you. She pressed her snout into his jacket and sniffed at his pocket watch as it ticked and whirred like the attendants on the Benedict. Please! The female fled with a screech, and the other lemurs followed. Filbert hurried after them, but after only a few steps his limbs cramped, and he slumped into the mud. I must smell like clockwork to them now, he said, burying his face in his muddied hands. The Benedict's attendants were upon Filbert the moment he entered the passenger cabin, grooming and cleaning him as best as they could, before allowing him to sit. The other Limahom, already settled with his newspaper, regarded Filbert with a derisive laugh. What a mess you look! You belong caged up in the luggage chest, 
with my new mate. Filbert collapsed into a wicker chair. He held his pocket watch up to his ear, whimpered at the sound of it ticking, talking in time with his heart. I told you the fools can't be helped, the Lemurhom said. They simply lack the gifts that you and I possess. It is not a gift to be so aware of what one can be, Fulbert said. It is a curse. He scratched a nail across his arm, drawing blood. A red he could not see. The End Read by Tepic Harlequin Our narrator, Tepic, is an urchin who lives in the city of New Babbage. He is eight, going on ancient. Our second story this evening comes to us from Diego Remondez. He has made an appearance in Cleaver magazine and has a forthcoming publication in Inwood, Indiana. Recently, he's left the States and is now in Spain working as an explorer in his food forest. When the crickets come out, or the mid-afternoon heat and planting gets difficult, he writes. It will be read for us by Byron. The Swineherd by Diego Ramondez. There was a time when talk in my village centered on a herd of pigs that foraged in the woods. It was never my talk. I said the obvious and logical thing. Pigs have gone extinct, you dummies. The claim was a dung too large with bits of wheat still undigested. The estimates were of a dozen mothers spawning hundreds of piglets. And for every argument to the contrary, they had a story. Some explained away extinction with a meandering series of coincidences, but they all relied heavy on fate and divine intervention to save this single herd. And I'd respond the same thing. Pigs have gone extinct, you dummies. These were my friends, and I was fond of them. But as long as they were gullible enough to be taken in by these stories, I was devalued by association. So I insisted. Let's bring proof back, with my rifle on my shoulder. But a hunt made them nervous. They said there was a special pig, camouflaged and thus invisible, who always traveled with the rest. This pig was said to be understanding, to a point. But everyone who had gone a-hunting and had happened on the herd wakened hours later with no memory of passing out, often with their extremities tied together and without ever a trail to follow. Stories even circulated that any hunter managing to fire off a round would sure themselves be wounded, bruised, or shot. They even said that those who never made it back had killed themselves a piggy. I settled then that we'd travel out without our packs, and go gunless. You know, to make it obvious we were not there to hunt. Oh, they made excuses of how difficult the herd would be to find. Factor in the pumas and factor out the pigs at winter prunes. I won them over in the end 
by realizing it was the pumas that worried them more than anything. I spun a yarn about how the woods would know we would cause no harm, and thus do us no harm, if we carried our guns to stop the hungry, naked, angry pumas. We were out a week, following our intuitions nowhere. At night we camped and recounted the myths we knew of pigs, all of which went something like this, editing out the impossible. There were a thousand years when pigs were kept in cages, a thousand years when they were bred to be fat and vile creatures whose tails had to be cut at birth so their neighbors wouldn't eat them. There were a thousand and one revolts for freedom against their human jailers, which never managed more than a few calves or a testicle. They were resolute and brave animals, who were only stopped from another revolt by the small detail of human hunger, which ate them into extinction. Except there was a place they'd been confined, fattened all on grass, roots, and chickens and geese, where they all kept living out their generations. It turned out to be true. After that first week, a piglet scuttled into our camp at first light. We froze. And a real live herd followed. I swear it. There were four mothers, two males, and a dozen piglets rooting and whining because they couldn't get at breadsticks in our bags. Every adult but one was quick to dart forward rip open our bags and scatter enough for everyone. The stories we told about them were true. Embroidered all, but true. The pigs nibbled at our shoes to investigate. A lot bit like our babies bring everything to their mouth. They were curious creatures, capable of understanding. Like the myths implied, their fur had hints of green, very near brown to camouflage my yarn about making our intentions of no harm known to the woods, it went, at least, undisproved. To not be completely wrong in my opinions, I took solace in there being no special pig who accompanied and protected the rest. We looked presently into the woods. No trace. We listened carefully. No sound. There was nothing to stop us from the hunt. Until... After some indefinite time, one pig, slightly taller than the rest, stood up on his hind legs. He said, Hello! Manipulating a pig's grunt almost into human tongue. Gav apples? We told him we didn't, and that all the food we had left, the pigs were already eating. He thanked us and got back on all fours. Those were the small events. But the whole? The whole of the exchange was much larger than small events. We were drawn in by his modifications. Impossible modifications. He was obviously human. Or he had been. He had a pig's figure. Perhaps he had prosthetics, but his legs were too short to have arms stuffed inside. Everything about him was molded porcelain. He had a long face, capable of digging straight into the soil and ripping weeds out by their roots. 
a body twice the usual girth, and a bouncing tail. Later, when we discussed it, we realized he'd kept human advantage. He almost certainly had split hooves that unwound into fingers to be able to tie hunters. Obviously a humanish larynx, and a human brain to consider trails and protection. But right then, when he grunted, and the pigs followed into the brush, and we were left alone. My friends tried to mock my disbelief. They tried forcing me to concede all my mistakes. But it was shallow, and they had no real need to embarrass me. All of it died away beneath our mutual ecstatic tension and pride ablaze that a herd of pigs was really possible. You know, that story brings to mind a girl I met last week. We introduced ourselves online, as one does these days. Then she suggested we go down to the local bookstore to meet one another. Things went decidedly well. Despite the fact that she initially expressed surprise that I resembled my online avatar, which she believed was for trolling purposes. I wasn't aware that you still went trolling. One finds so few of them in the wilds these days. And I can scarcely imagine what good an avatar would do in such a situation at any rate. The young lady and I had coffee, then browsed the shelves together, discovering we had a mutual interest in Spring-Heeled Jack, the Victorian boogeyman. Then, well, she asked me back to her flat. When we got there, things proceeded rather quickly. She poured me a brandy and told me I really brought out the animal in her. Then she retired momentarily to slip into something more comfortable. Well, instead of coming out wearing less, she was actually wearing more. Much, much more. I can only assume that the poor girl was the mascot for the community college basketball team. Why else would she come out dressed like an ocelot? <laughs> Kids these days. But, well, never let it be said that old Osgood can't learn a new trick. <clears throat> Perhaps it is time for us to close. This episode was produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. My chorus is Walking Along by Kevin MacLeod.
Project. Story music and sound effects provided by Pond5. This episode was released in June of 2017. For full show notes, do visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. I'd like to see that young woman again. Uh, Perhaps. Some obedience training.